This is Kirsten Gunnerud with the Play Create Podcast, introducing part three of our epic conversation with Robert Poynton, author of Do Improvise and Do Pause, and creator of Rocket Trikes Launchpad. In part one, we explored that launchpad, and in part two, the importance of pausing and play to creating breakthroughs and working with whatever shows up and creating forward. And now in part three, the conversation continues. <laughs> yes, this was an epic conversation. Here we dive much deeper into the pause and why it is so incredibly powerful, how this tool can make such a big difference. Um, we talk about it, including how Jill and I look at it as being the center of the launch pad, that place between letting go, noticing more and using everything, that place where you can almost shift time and pause in the moment to find the opportunity that's right there so that you can work with it. You know, I love in the idea of the improv, but as you're going into the pause, what are you noticing when you're talking to people? I mean, we see it all the time for us about just trying to slow everything down just for a moment because we'll just, what I keep going back to is when you were talking about senses. So when you're talking mm -hmm. about uh, do improv, you're always talking about, okay, we're using more senses. We're not just coming into a situation and being like, oh, well, that's just what's there. We're like, okay, how am I seeing this? How am I feeling it? Where do I feel it in my body? What am I hearing? What am I noticing? All of this. And the pause, I feel like for me, is a really big integral bar of, part of that because it makes me just take in for a second. So we talk about intention a lot. Mm -hmm. So with the work that I do with trauma, I'm always talking about, we're here for a moment. What's the intention? And then let's go from there so that everyone just has to pause in that moment and just notice what's coming up for them right there. Cause I could have my own intention, but it's totally different than what yours is or what yeah. Kirsten's is. Like we we're trying to do that all the time. So mm -hmm. what are you noticing in your work with that? Um, yeah, a lot of things. Um, I think, I mean, I suppose for me, one of the big learnings from working on the book and doing the research that led to it is this sort of this kind of really palpable sense in which time has just so many more dimensions than we normally give it. Yeah. So we, we have this sort of idea as this thin line and all you can do is chop it into bits. And uh, it's interesting, this pattern has been in my thinking for a long time, because many, many years ago, I wrote a, a blog post called The Dictatorship of Diaries, calendars, you would call them. And <laughs> the idea that, um, <laughs> that, 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 uh, that a, a, a tool that we use to organize time is really nothing more than a line chopped into bits. And it doesn't matter if it's on a computer or on a piece of paper. And I was, remember thinking about it the first time when I was writing a book, because, you know, finish book or write book isn't something you can put in a calendar right. it doesn't work like that. Right? It's, it's bigger than that and it's more difficult, but, and, and, and nor can you break it down into simple bits. Maybe some writers can, some people write in order, some people uh, write pieces, but for most writers that I know and most writers I read about, it's a much messier, you know, looping back kind of a, a thing. So where do you put that on a line? Yeah. 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 And, and so the challenge in that particular blog post was kind of to the tool designers of the world to say, especially with technology these days, give me something more helpful. 
give me a thing that I can, I can put somewhere that like starts to get annoyed or buzz or go red after a certain amount of time, but which doesn't kind of have these sort of fixed lines around it. So I think that, um, what was the first clue for me that there's more to time than just this kind of chunks of time and that not all units of time are the same. And of course, as soon as you stop to think about that, you, we all know that yeah. we all know that 15 minutes waiting for a bus or 15 minutes eating a brownie or 15 minutes you know, a screaming kid are all different, you know? So, so we know that. And I think kind of, so I suppose what I'm finding and what I'm in, trying to encourage people to do is kind of what you're already doing which is to say look it might be just the moment but it's not just a moment there's a whole world in there yeah you know? or it might be just a weekend or it might be just an hour and and i think what's interesting is that the getting to the edge of it you have to get to that brink and you have to kind of want to get your feet muddy yeah. to get in there because there's there's this thing you know and i'm pointing up here because it's you know where we tend to think of our rational, cognitive, intellectual function. What Ian McGilchrist in his book, The Master and His Emissary, calls the Berlusconi of the brain, which is a bit of a European joke, but, you know, Berlusconi is the um, Italian media-owning president, you know, and so he, McGilchrist calls the, the, the kind of rational, verbal function the Berlusconi of the brain because it owns all the media. And so in your own mind, the bit that can reason and think and use words tells you that lo and behold, the most important thing is reasoning and using words. You go, well, you would say that, you know, <laughs> you would, you know? Um, and so heart and body and all those and all those other things get get left out. And so that's the part of us that says, keep on going, keep on ticking, got to achieve, got to tick, you know. Um, and I've just realized actually ticking things off and the tick of the clock the same word right and so i suppose in my work what i'm finding is is i suppose i'm really trying to disabuse people of the notion that they don't have time to do this um by saying um well it doesn't take much time clock time you know um uh and then i'm and then the other then the kind of next one is um that they sort of say was well i couldn't possibly go slowly and you kind of go well yeah but that's all relative so what's slow and what's fast um, and actually, in, in English, we have a lot of old wisdom to hand in, in the saying. So more haste, less speed. So even if you want to do things fast, don't be hasty. Don't rush. Don't hurry. And that was the fulcrum between the two, two books and the two bodies of work, really, was that realizing that skilled improvisers on stage do not hurry. Mm -hmm. yes. cool. yeah. So they make something in real time, which is ingenious and inventive and satisfying, satisfying for them and their colleagues as well as for the audience and they do it fast i mean faster than anybody really and yet they don't hurry so i was like "Ooh, what's going on there so the kind of slow thing is not helpful i mean i'm a big fan of the slow movement in certain contexts slow food um those sorts of things but it only works if you frame it relative to something else because sometimes slow isn't good and sometimes pausing doesn't slow you down it yeah. speeds you up um, and they say that high performance sports uh, stars, so tennis players, baseball players, um, actually what those, what the very, very best players do is pause. They play the ball later, not sooner, later. They, they give themselves that bit more time and they have the capacity to respond in less time. Mm -hmm. So there's the kind of slow misunderstanding, if you like. And then the third thing is kind of like, oh, well, I, you know, I, I mean, I can't be seen to be doing nothing or I couldn't do nothing. And of course, uh, when you pause, you don't do nothing. There's a whole, as you rightly said, in that pause, 
you can check in with yourself, you can share with somebody else, you can notice how you're feeling. So you might have your intention and you might have reasoned your way to that intention. And then when you hold it for that second, you might go, that doesn't feel right, actually. That's not what I'm intending anymore. Um, or you might suddenly notice a feeling about, I'm really, really curious, you know, of what his intention is. Yeah. So let me ask him. Um, so that kind of, um, it's not nothing. And, and to put the same thing the other way around. Uh, if we need to change things, and, it, you know, I mean, imagine pretty much everybody would agree that we need to change things, even those people who politically would completely disagree with me. They'd probably want to change different things than me. But I think we all want to change things. Nobody would pretend the world is perfect. How can we do that if we just keep doing what we've always been doing? And if we're head down and, and going like that? And if you don't stop for long enough to look up and out, to, to garner that extra piece of information or insight or to ask somebody who has been there or whatever it is, then how on earth are we ever going to change anything? You know, um, that's the, then we're just locked into a kind of inertia. As you've been exploring pause more, um, even since writing the book with all the conversations and things that you're having. So there are places where I have like walking through a door I always make sure to take a breath and that's kind of my way of pausing and cleaning out before I enter whatever that next thing is, or I have these little cues, but then there's the times when we're in the middle of something, we don't even realize it. And I always um, laugh about when you were writing and you and I were talking and you were like, I can't write today. I have to keep going. And I'm like, but I'm my writer's block. And it was Rob, just pause, like <laughs> pause. And, um, we're obtuse. We're obtuse beings. We're our own worst enemies in many ways. And I remember that incident very well. And 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 I think it's a good example actually because first of all, it says, look, we're, we're not. The reason it's worth dwelling on these things is because we're all prey to it. We're, nobody's immune, and, and and me least of all. In fact, you know, they say that you write the books that you want to read, and so you know, essentially that book's I'm probably talking to myself. You know, um, but you helped me enormously that day. But I think what's interesting, if we go into it a bit more, is Intellectually and rationally, as you said it to me, I was like, yeah, I know she's right. But emotionally, I couldn't get there because I'd been locked onto a particular thing that I could convince myself I needed to do. Right. And, and it took me probably, once we finished speaking, it took me probably an hour to really hear you mm -hmm. and to really sink into it. And then, of course, when I did, of course, it wove its magic and it, and, it, and it was the next day and everything was fine, you know. So sometimes you're not going to want to. Um, and sometimes um, it takes a friend. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, and sometimes, you know, who knows if in that instance what might have been getting in the way was, you know, my self-image. No, 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 I, I know about this. Kirsten can't possibly tell me anything about this. You know, so I needed to kind of, and I, yes, I know, you know, obviously she looks like I need to pause, but I actually, I know that I don't need to, or, you know, so there can be lots of reasons that kind of get in the way. Um, we, we all do it. Like I, I'm not, I, I do it every day. And I'm, what I'm trying to still get, figure out is even with putting cues in place and I've got my phone where I have two alarms a day. So just, that's yeah. my pause moment. Like yeah. I have all that, but we still, is there anything, or maybe sometimes it's that other person who reminds us or our kids who, or sometimes maybe we're just supposed to be in that place 
or is there something, well, is there, I kind of go back to that compass idea. So orienting your compass. So there's not a direct route all the time, but there's that inner compass. So yeah. how do we reorient? So maybe it is in that moment and being able to be perceptive enough to be like, well, okay. Yeah. I'm, I, I don't have writer's block. I got this. And then all of a sudden the inner compass is like, Oh wait, that just brought me back. So what well, things do we have yeah. that bring us back to well, gosh, yeah, God, this is fascinating. So there's a couple of things I want to I want to kind of just log here before. So the phone alarm thing, I've been thinking about that a lot in the last couple of days, and I've got a thought on that, but I want to go to what Jill said. So remind me to come back to that. I think that um, uh, yeah, the, <laughs> I think that there's um. Remind me what you just said. There was something that's so gone. The compass, instead of just having like the due north. So we're always, I think what happens is people want answers and they yes. want it to be just so. And I just do A, B, C and it's going to make sense. And just knowing like, it just, we're always changing. I mean, you just talked about it. We're evolving culture. We're evolving species. So there aren't fixated points. However, there are things within us that help reorient us to a direction that's more aligned or more in awareness or more in the pause and the richness. Yeah. I think I can kind of tie these two things together because the, the, I'll start with the phone thing. So was, I was talking with somebody at, on the leadership program here in Oxford this week and, and it came up and she was talking about how she sets her phone and it just says breathe and I it's once an hour or something. And I was kind of like, wow, that's kind of cool. And, and then I, I thought, how do I feel about that? Cause something didn't instinctively didn't feel, didn't feel quite right. I, I still think that's a good thing, actually. I think that's helpful that technology can do that. But I was trying to explore why didn't that feel quite right to me. And I realized that if you think about it, the device is still running on mechanical time. So it's saying, excuse me, excuse me, time to pause, time to pause. And, it, and it's time according to some external schedule. And, and I think it's back to the noticing. And so what I, my reflections this week on this have been that maybe a huge amount of the value of the pause is in you noticing that it's time to pause. Yes. So if you delegate that noticing to someone else or something else, that's gone. And so it's, a, it's about kind of bringing your noticing inside of you again uh, and feeling and making that choice and exercising um, some kind of almost sovereignty over yourself and I think that oh it's come back to me now yeah Rachel Liebus the fabulous Rachel Liebus so she's a psychotherapist here in Oxford and she helps us on the on the program teaching meditation and she has this beautiful way of explaining meditation and so people have this idea that meditation is about stilling the mind and for me uh, I can only speak from this one experience of this particular mind but that is not not it's not just difficult, it's impossible and pointless. That's not the way my mind works. And I'm pretty sure it's not the way anybody's mind works. And I just don't buy the idea of complete inner stillness. And so Rachel's way of teaching is great for me because she says the nature of the mind is it drifts, it goes, it wanders. Um, but there is an awareness that's beyond that thinking that can notice the wandering. And so you notice the mind has wandered and you choose to bring it back. And she has this lovely gesture where she says that the mind goes away and you choose to bring it back. She says the meditation 
is the bringing it back. Yeah. That the meditation. And so what's really lovely about that is if she's right, and it doesn't, yeah, it's right or wrong, it's just kind of, if that idea is helpful to you, then, then what that means is you can't meditate unless your mind wanders. Because if it never wanders anywhere, then you can't, in the meditation consists in the bringing it back, then you need to, bring, you need to have gone in order to come back. So to the point about how, how do you cultivate this pause, I'd look, I'd, I'd look at it this way. I, you know, um, I was at a thing here in Oxford a few weeks ago with David White, the poet, about his book Consolations, where he takes these words that are, are kind of you know, tired and worn out and gives them new life. And he was talking about, um, I think one of them is failure or something like that, you know. And he's, and he's sort of just sort of repositioned failure as a kind of, uh, as a way to kind of, you know, um, acknowledge your imperfection and be compassionate to yourself and, and embark upon a, a new learning of journey, a new journey of learning. So you, yeah, we'll keep messing up. We'll keep forgetting. I'll need a friend to remind me. You'll need a, you, you watch can help occasionally. Um, uh, a child, a passerby, someone else, you know, all sorts of things. And we'll keep failing. But since the business of life is, is confronting and engaging and overcoming those struggles and difficulties, that's what life is. That's not what happens in life. That's what life is. Yes. You see that any biological organism is struggling against well entropy if you want to get all scientific about it but it's struggling against something and i don't just mean prey and predators i mean it's struggling against the fact that the universe is kind of wanting to run down and just even out yeah. and and so you know life is kind of going against the grain it's going against the current and energy and matter are cycling through us but the pattern is the life not the energy or the matter so all our bodies are different. The matter in it, the precise atoms are different now than they were seven years ago, even our bones, you know. So, um, so we're this pattern, this kind of like a wave in the sea. And so, um, and so kind of, you know, we're uh, constantly in that process of struggling against, you know. And so if there's no struggle, then, then where are we, you know? And that's not just delight in suffering or be masochistic. It's just to say that's the way life is. And, and, but as a side note on that, you kind of go, no wonder all the great traditions have some word for suffering or karma or, and it's because they're acknowledging and recognizing that this is the nature of, of being, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the other thing that's coming to mind listening and, and just thinking through this is being in the process, which is again what what the launch pad does for me is helps me be in the process. Absolutely. But when we're in the process instead of the outcome, you had a deadline or something, right? I think at the time where there was something you had to get to, which was part of where that pressure was coming from. And I think we get so focused again on this outcome or this finished product or this thing we have to get to that we... Well, I think I was, um, you know, being in the process. We normally say in defense of myself, and I'm going to say, <laughs> say in attack of myself, if you can say that, is I don't think there was a deadline, but I would say that the deadline, the only one Miranda ever gave me was the delivery date for the whole manuscript. Um, and I would call that in a way, of course, it's a deadline. And just, I can't resist another Douglas Adams quote. He he was famous for missing his deadline. So famous that his agent used to lock him in a hotel room uh, and take away the key and only let him out for short walks. So he would write. Um, but he said, I love deadlines. I love the sound they make as they whoosh by. 
so no, I would think of that end point as a kind of what I would call a boundary condition. And I wasn't that, I was sort of close to it, but I wasn't that, the, the deadline in question was something I had promised to myself okay. that I would deliver upon. Which is funny, actually, because David White was talking about that as well. And he said, there's this brilliant conceit, this brilliant idea he had about we have to learn how to break promises. Particularly the invisible promises we make to ourselves about who we are. Yes, I agree. Amazing idea. So good. Nobody's ever, in our culture, it's, oh, you mustn't break a promise and blah, blah, blah. And you kind of go, no, and he's like, no, 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 you must. You must. And you are all the time. (laughs) And he said, he said, and also because the real true big promises, you can't break. Yeah. Even if you try. And so that's how you know if it's a real promise. So this was one of those small promises I'd made to myself. And so I was irritated with myself and unable to hear you properly, but you insisted so that I kind of, I kind of could. And that takes us to compassion for self. You know, we'll keep, we'll kind of keep messing up and, and, and we'll never get there. Um, yeah, every day. That's one of the things we talk about on the podcast is we, we are not experts on anything, but we have a lot of expertise because <laughs> we're making the same mistakes, you know, learning as we go. Well, and we're all active participants. Yes. So we're not just on the sidelines like, oh, we did it. We've got this down pass. Yes. It's all <laughs> figured out. <laughs> Follow my way and yeah. your life yeah. will become. Yeah. I don't know if this exists but if 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 pluralism exists then i'm a pluralist you know i i kind of think that the ways that we can understand the world we i think it's like a patchwork quilt Mm -hmm. right so there are parts of the the universe that you can understand in a certain way so physics is good for some stuff but it's not very good for living things you know biochemistry is really useful for living things but doesn't tell you much about you know elements or whatever psychology sociology economics whatever you want to take it but then also you know poetry uh, sculpture um you know interpretive dance um religion um uh, zen whatever um all different ways of understanding and overlapping and intersecting but none of them having as it were a privileged point of view and uh and i think then the skill becomes or the yeah the if you use a religious word actually the grace is to be able to sense and feel where and when one way of understanding or knowing uh, is appropriate and where another one is and when to move from one to another and how to hold multiple frames in in play. Um, And then we're back to play. You see, hold in play. To hold things in play, there's a present continuous sense to that. We are playing with this. We are holding it in play. More than one thing is in play. So it's not reducing it down to a sort of definitive unitary thing but we all find that difficult and uh, I think by the nature of the mind and I think many of our institutions and organizations whether they be churches or governments or cultures or companies um, they prey upon that weakness and amplify it actually so yeah we could keep talking all day I I know know. and (laughs) we will if you will Will, would love to have you back. Um, One of the things that we do at the end of every one of our podcasts is based on what we've been talking about is is invite people to try something over that week and to play with that. And I'm curious what both of your ideas would be. What's coming to mind for me is going back to the very beginning of our conversation when we were talking about optimism, pessimism, and then Mm. this idea of constructive. 
And so um, for some reason that's sparking mm -hmm. something for me, which is, and you asked, or you added to that the question, what can I do with this? Mm -hmm. And so my invitation for people this week would be to um, just whatever you have going on, to just take a look at it and whether you're optimistic about it or pessimistic about it, to shift into that gear of being constructive with it and just ask yourself, what can I do with this? What's here mm -hmm. and what can I do with this? So that's the idea that's coming to mind for me for people to try. Is there anything well, else? Well, I love that idea of construct because then it means yes. you're actually doing something with all the pieces. Mm. And it's not just um, something that we're just looking at. I think so. What I notice is I'll be looking on the edge instead of jumping in. So we talk about process a lot. So optimistic and pessimistic get us in that thought of like, oh, is it good or is it bad? Where mm. constructive is we're actually getting in the nitty gritty and starting to see what other options might exist within it. I think that's right. I think optimism and pessimism, they kind of, again, it comes from the drive for certainty. They kind of, they want to collapse it into some kind of verdict. Uh, and there's a, again, there's a, a guy that we used to have come and, uh, you know, a very eminent economist here and come and talk to a group about the state of the world and, and the risks and opportunities that exist. And, uh, and at the end, people always want to know, well, are you optimistic or pessimistic? And I'm sitting there kind of going, who gives a damn what he thinks? You know, yeah. what does it matter? So you're going to go out into the world and because this eminent economist says he's pessimistic, you're going to do one thing. And because he says he's optimistic, no, you're not going to do that. And so, so what a kind of pointless question. Mm -hmm. um, but people would always want to ask it. I thought it was kind of weird. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think, yeah, they collapse us into that sort of state where we don't act as opposed to... So, I mean, if I were to amplify or add to what Kirsten said, I think that... Um, I'd just say, allow the thing that you choose to ask yourself, what can I make of this? Mm -hmm. Allow that to be a source of what well, something you would normally regard as something negative. So a source of frustration or difficulty. So just don't, don't kind of go, Oh, it's all good. It's, oh, it's a bad thing. I thought it was a bad thing. It's a good thing. No, because it's not about good or bad. So let go of that judgment and just say, right, I don't have enough time to do it in the way I thought. How can I use the fact I don't have enough time? Can I find a friend? Do I uh, write it in bullet points instead of in prose or the other way around? Or uh, do I sing it or do I ask someone else or what do I do? You know, so find something that's a struggle or that's difficult. You know, we don't have enough money to do what we were going to do. Okay, great. So uh, what could you do for no money or what could you do for a small amount of money? Or um, why do you need money at all? Or maybe you don't need to do the thing. Maybe you want to use the time and then the money you do have is a lot of money for that amount of time to do something completely different. Yeah. So start with the thing that, that is, is, is kind of rubbing up against you, if you like. Yeah. Uh, if you feel like it. You know. um, because, it, it, you know, the stuff that's self-evidently a kind of a resource and helpful it's it's easier to to think about what to do with those things that's quite natural so try the opposite yeah awesome love it well thank you for joining us yeah. really You're grateful <laughs> sweet yeah. dreams yeah well yeah i go time to make some food now i think but that was a, <laughs> thank you to you that was a fabulous uh, um conversation i really uh, i really enjoyed it